Hello and welcome to the weekend wrap for the week on Wednesday. I am your co-host for today's very special post-Victorian election edition of the weekend wrap. Joining me is the great, the glorious, the best-selling author of QAnon, short and shocking history of internet conspiracy cults, Guardian columnist, and my wife, Van Bowden. How are you, Van? I'm pretty good, Ben. I'm pretty good, actually. Uh, we woke up late after midday because we had quite a big night last night doing another live election telecast with our friend Stephen Donnelly from Socially Democratic. It was a fantastic evening, actually, to uh, be there with Stephen and the data crew in the back room. We love them. Crunching the numbers. We love those data crew people. They get so excited about data. And look, lots of reasons to be excited last night. Yes. Now, I was just in our local supermarket and I saw a copy of the Herald Sun and they were running a headline about drug test hell. Uh, Did something else happen in Victoria in the past 24 hours, Ben? Well, the Herald Sun might not be able to quite stomach the fact that Dan Andrews was re-elected with a thumping majority. An absolute thumping majority. For a third term. For, For a third term. And as a Premier who is likely to make 10 years serving in Parliament, I believe thanks to a law passed by Jeff Kennett, that means that Daniel Andrews will receive a statue. Yeah, and look, Jeff Kennett last night on a different uh, network's coverage didn't seem particularly happy when he came to realise that Dan Andrews would receive uh, a statue. And and look, we'll post some pictures of uh, Jeff Kennett's face from that coverage because it's quite remarkable to see a man of his age and uh, capacity for a whiskey uh, on a Friday night who likes to tweet bizarre and sometimes not quite accurate uh, I'm not sure if they're haikus or if they're meant to be haikus, but he seems to try and structure them like haikus. Maybe that's the whiskey. I don't know. It's remarkable to see him almost have a complete breakdown uh, on the coverage last night. Of course, he was on a panel with Steve Brax, who quite famously destroyed Jeff Kennett, former Liberal Premier of Victoria's own capacity to get said statue back in the day. That's right. The man who brought in the premiers who serve long enough will get a statue law <laughs> on the assumption that he would get said statue lost to uh, Steve Brax, who himself retired despite having won enough elections to win the statue, retired before he actually met the eligibility. And I recall many years ago a journalist asking him about his decision to retire very close to that threshold uh, and him basically waving it away with, my legacy is the prosperity of the Victorian people. It's not a piece of bronze uh, in Treasury Gardens. Uh, interesting that Jeff Kennett can't say the same. In fact, Jeff Kennett can't say either, really, can he? No. And look, Van, you know. Thanks th- for closing our local train station, Jeff. <laughs> We're a safe Labor seat now. Yeah, look. I think it's interesting to talk about some of the seats because we will talk about the media coverage of the election and even post-election, some of it has continued to be, frankly, just appalling in my view and the view of many people. But here's the numbers where they stand. And what I'm doing here is I'm giving the parties the seats that the ABC says they're likely to pick up because at the moment those likely trends are continuing as the ABC has been predicting them. So Labor goes from having 56 seats, which was a Dan slide in 2018, to 56 seats, which is a Dan slide mark two. 
Well, one would call it a dance slide the second time if it is exactly the same result as when it was called a dance slide the first time. That's what I would do. That's what you would do. But, Ben, there are people who are not doing that. No, the Herald Sun has run a piece by Andrew Bolt saying Dan Andrews should uh, quit, should resign, uh, which is bizarre. Uh, The Age has said that there's been a green wave, uh, which is incredibly strange given the Greens have gone from three seats to four seats. How many seats are in the Victorian Parliament, Ben? Uh, well, there's a lot. <laughs> it's quite a lot. You need 45 for majority. So let me put it the, to you this way. So there are, there are 89, 90 seats in the... Yeah. So the Greens have four. Yeah, that's... I don't know if I'd call that a green wave. Well, to have 10% of the parliament, to have 10% of the parliament, you would need... Nine Nine seats. seats. Yeah. So there are... Well, less than five. Less than five percent. Okay. So that that that's, that's it's not really a fifty percent plus one majority. No, no. And look, you know, you go well. Maybe they could, you know, form government with the Liberals and the Nats. The the Liberals, you know, they're the opposition. But they can't bet. No, because the Liberals have gone from twenty one to eighteen seats. Right. And the Nats have gone from six to nine. Okay, now, so the Liberals have eighteen seats. That's and the Nationals point. have nine. Yes. So that's twenty seven. For the coalition, 18 plus 9. Correct, which is how many seats they had before the election. Right. So the Greens with five seats, or sorry, four Four seats, seats. four seats, have significantly less than the Liberal National Coalition. Or either member of the coalition. So the Greens can't be the opposition. They can't be recognised. Right. I'm trying to understand how this is being reported as a green slide. To go from three to four... (laughs) <laughs> to have less than 5% of the seats in Parliament when Labor have an overwhelming majority and will be able to pass laws in their own right, and yet the Conservatives are still the opposition with 27 seats, which is almost eight times as many seats as the Greens. Yeah. Sure. Because No, sorry. I, is that right? <laughs> Well, it's seven, times, seven, seven times. Seven, seven times. Almost seven times. Time. My apologies. I, I did say we had quite an exhausting night last night. But I think it's really interesting to note that the coverage of this election campaign has been so skewed, so heavily. so Skewed he- bourgeois inner city Melbourne nonsense? Yeah, because frankly, the Liberals have gone backwards. There's no question about that. They have gone backwards. Labor has, Labor had 55 MPs in the lower house. It had a notional 56 seats because of redistributions. It has actually made good on redistribution on the redistributions to pick up to 56. So there will be more Labor bodies in the chamber than there were last time. One extra body. There will be fewer Liberal bodies. There will be more Nats because they've picked up the formerly independent seats in Mildura, Shepparton and Morwell. And the Greens will have one extra. So all in all, the one extra seat that was created through redistribution has resulted in the Greens getting an extra seat. Now, that seems like a pretty straightforward narrative. It seems like a pretty straightforward set of results, actually. What has been the narrative, though? Dan Andrews is on the nose. Labor and Liberal are neck and neck. The Labor Party is in trouble. Results are tightening. 
the Greens are going to sweep the inner city. I haven't even heard anything about the Nats. The Nats have net gained the most number of seats and there's been no commentary about the Nats. Not to mention that there has been an enormous amount of commentary in recent years about the drift of rural seats to independence, yeah. which is based on Kathy McGowan and the set of Indi, inherited by independent Helen Haynes, repudiation of conservatives, you know, very powerful independent challenges to sitting National Party MPs. Gabrielle Chan has her excellent book, Rusted Off, which is about, you know, the disassociation of rural communities from political representation. So the idea that the Nats have been able to, like, to, to wipe away the independents who had challenged them for their traditional territory seems to be a much bigger story in this election yeah. than anyone is reporting. And I'm really curious as to why not. Like, well, it's because of the it's because of the fact that the age is incredibly Melbourne centric. Well, it is the Melbourne and, age, but also it's very inner city centric. The Herald Sun is incredibly Melbourne centric as well. Um, Ali Kappa uh, did a great job. Did a great job uh, uh, up in Mildura. She got a hospital. She she delivered for that community. But the Nats have knocked her off, and it's you know quite a big swing to the Nats up there. And Ali Kappa was also relentlessly hounded by conspiracy theorists and loons. Yeah. For the positions that she took during the pandemic, supporting the Andrews government, and was well supporting the public health response. And, yeah, the, her harassment was absolutely extraordinary. So there is a really interesting story there about what happened, you know, if cookers came into play, what's going on. I'd love to read that story. If anybody would like to write it, please send it to me and I'll push it out on all fronts. And I think it's really it's really interesting because you've raised the issue of the cookers, right? And this election we saw mainstream mastheads run conspiracy theorist propaganda in the paper, on the front page. We saw them run Liberal Party internal polling as though it were fact. Ian Cook, who is a cooker. He's the sort of alpha cooker. Who ran against Dan Andrews in Mulgrave. Did a He's like the agger of cookers. Well, (laughs) he did a poll. That was a very funny joke, by the way. He did a poll of less than 200 people, right, provided that, to the age, and they ran it as fact. The age. That's my understanding, right? So let's be really clear here. The standard of journalism that has covered this election has been appalling. You know, front page after front page of front page of the Herald Sun has attacked Dan Andrews. The age has just been, in my view, totally appalling as well. The, the when I did journalism at university back in my day, he loves telling me this because I didn't. Yes, but back in my day, we were told you ran a story when you had two sources, two different corroborating sources, not two sources from the same place. Not Samantha Ratnam and Adam Bant both saying there's been a green wave, but Samantha Samantha Ratnam says there's a green wave. Go and have a look at the numbers. Because the numbers don't show that, from three seats to four seats. In some places, like in Northcote, 
the green primary dropped by 10 percentage points, a 10-point drop in their primary. That is not a wave. No. That is that is a dam that is stopping the flow. It's, it's a drought. It's a retraction of yeah. the sea. So the idea that you would run these sort of things and the idea that you would run an Ian Cook commissioned poll of less than 200 people provided to you by Ian Cook without doing any form so Ian Cook, everybody, ran in Mulgrave against yeah. the Premier. And look, he was very clear that he wanted to knock off Dan Andrews. He espoused conspiracy theories about the pandemic throughout the entire election campaign. He brought in people from around the state and from other states to campaign for him on election day. He made the Mulgrave electorate an unsafe place for people to be. And there was reports of scuffles. There was video footage of, of, um, of a physical altercation. There was reports of people being abused. Uh, and, of course, Dan Andrews did the right thing and pre-polled, right? And even that, the media attacked. So the Liberals tried to make out that Dan Andrews was afraid to be in his own electorate because he was so on the nose, and they reported that his pre-polling was somehow an indication that he was going to lose the seat. He was going to lose the seat of Mulgrove. Now... That is an outrageous thing to print. Yes, and let's be very clear. This is Dan Andrews, the Premier of, of Victoria, who was subjected to public death threats by a very small group of radicalised far-right extremists. And I can tell you this directly because I was monitoring those far-right communities to write my QAnon book and physically with my own little eyeballs saw the kind of threats and vitriolic language that was being levelled against the Premier. This is a Premier who was subjected to nooses being paraded down Spring Street, the home of the Victorian Parliament building, like by said small minority of right-wing extremists. So why the Premier, who requires a security retinue because of mm. the the number of threats that he and his family have received, it would be unsafe for him to be any kind of potentially confrontational environment with the kind of unhinged loons, radical, like red mist vitriol spouting, just fruity fruit loops of fruit that, I mean, and yet, and yet this was positioned as, oh, it's a sign that the Premier is not, not confident of winning Mulgrave. Like... It's just so outrageous and so ridiculous and it speaks to the lack of connection to community that so many of these editors have that they're prepared to just take any old nonsense that's fed to them and run it as news. Yes. For example, the front page of the Herald Sun with the headline, The Stairs That Brought Down a Premier, with a front page, like full-colour photograph of the stairs that Daniel Andrews famously fell, tripped over and fell down, cement stairs, like breaking a bone in his back, during the the height of the pandemic. Now, because I was monitoring loons mm. on the internet at the time, I saw the very quick proliferation of just absolutely fant like fantastical insinuations and conspiracy theories about him falling down the stairs. Mm. For those of you who didn't hear it, apparently the conspiracy theory goes that Daniel Andrews 
had, you know, fathered alien children with the daughter of the Lowys or, you know, because of some, yeah, some famous family had secretly fathered children or had an affair and, you know, in order to breed more lizard people. or I mean, it was that level stuff and that the patriarch of said clan had found out and threw him down these stairs and that the media was covering it up. And it was, I mean, it was deep cracks, beneath the deep cracks. It was Mines of Moria kind of stuff. And it was literally Balrog-level internet nonsense. But for the Herald Sun to then run that going, oh, we're just asking questions, someone needs to ask the questions, that's literally the kind of rhetoric that conspiracy theorists use, right? And Michael Kroger, former director of the Liberal Party, yeah, he repeated this on the Sky News coverage last night, oh, we're just asking questions, it's perfectly valid. And Stephen Conroy was like, have you flipped your lid? Like this is completely mad. And it goes to show that the people of Victoria are not loons. The ABC has a piece out today which says there was a lot of noise. The, the people who were angry at Dan Andrews made a lot of noise in this election. It was actually the quiet Victorians who want better hospitals, who want better roads, who want to get rid of level crossings, who want things like paid sick leave for casuals, who want wage theft laws, protection from wage theft, who want industrial manslaughter laws, who just turned up on the day and cast their ballot without making a big song and dance about it. And the the Labor activists, the people at Victorian Trades Hall, Labor members, union members right around the country. And if you're not a union member and you're listening to this podcast, you should be joining up right now because today's stories are all about why Labor as a movement is so important. Go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, and you can join your union now. Those people doing that work on the ground in seats like Melton, um, out in the out in the southeastern suburbs, down uh, down that part of the world, have meant that there were swings towards Labor in some cases. There were seats that seats that the Liberals had banked and said we're going to pick those up because they're naturally our constituency. They rejected this conspiratorial right wing. Looney Tunes version of a political party and said, no, actually, we're having conversations with people about what Labor's delivering and we recognise that, yeah, it's been a terrible couple of years for everybody. But Dan Andrews made tough decisions. He put in place the supports that he could and we're coming out of it in a really good and strong position. It's not perfect. Everybody acknowledges that. But nobody expects perfect. People expect sensible. Adults don't expect perfect, Ben. Yeah, that's right. Children do, but yeah. adults don't. You know, and and reasonable people, the majority do. Extremists don't. I mean, I mean, extremists do. Extremists expect that their particular vision of what the world should lo- should be like should dominate everybody's. Well, democracy is not the right political system for you, pals. Like I would suggest you try an autocracy where a very small number of people make decisions that they impose on everybody else because that's sort of more your style. And to be frank, those people would not be put in charge anyway. Yeah, probably not, although they might end up in some kind of death squad, you know, which is how tyrannies maintain power because they're kind of unpleasant places to live. But in democracies, 
what the majoritarianism is about realizing that governing for the majority means you get a lot of what you like, but some things that you won't because you have to accommodate the majority. The opposite of this is called particularism, which is the idea that what a very small number of people really, really want, they get and screw everybody else. And we're not doing that here. No. Right? So, and you can see that in the voting patterns in the re election of the Andrews government. And Andrews himself acknowledged it. You know, he quoted Keating in his victory speech last night mm. that leadership is not doing what, doing things that will make people like you. It's about doing what is right. And I think a lot of Victorians, as unpleasant as the lockdowns were, they were awful. They fundamentally recognized that as imperfect as responses were, they were. The, the responses that kept us alive. Yeah, and this is where I think the media has failed the people of Victoria and consistently continues to fail. You know, the the front page after front page attacking Dan Andrews, the, the Sky News uh, uh, so-called documentary about the cult of Dan Andrews where Neil Mitchell got to complain about the fact that Dan Andrews doesn't like going on his radio show. It's like, boo-hoo, Neil. <laughs> boo-hoo. Dan Andrews has never come on our podcast either. Yeah. You don't see us crying to Peter Credlin about it. Like, grow up, you old man. Oh, Peter, can you get Daniel, Daniel Andrews to come on our podcast? Yeah, I wouldn't even. That's, like it's I not- mean, sorry, that's like a nightmare version of reality, isn't it? But that's the Sky News experience. And let's talk about Sky News and let's talk about the Liberal Party and let's talk about the cookers mm. and the way that that sphere of influence is operating. Because what I can see from my adventures pretending to be other people on the internet, uh, a, a community of people associated with the right of politics who are absolutely high on their own supply where you you have a situation where people are the the kind of propaganda, right-wing propaganda that has been churned out to mobilise conservative voters as various kinds of electoral force has become extremely sophisticated to the point where it's no longer deployed by cynical use. The people who are deploying right-wing propaganda have started to believe it. And this is hugely problematic because while it's politically clever to target, to use the internet and internet media to, to coax a small group of extremist voters into being like shock troops for political issues in the way that you know, that that you used to be able to sort of campaign to crazy um, anti-carbon tax protesters, for example, yeah. and get kind of a fringe out to pretend to be, a, you know, like a legitimate social cause, the way that the Liberals had that weird convoy to Canberra of trucks yeah. um, a few years ago, when was it, 2016, and the Liberals got uh, used social media very effectively to get independent truck drivers to campaign against better pay rates for truck drivers. That can be really clever. But if you start believing it, if you are, you know, in the decision-making decision, decision halls, and you can see this in the United States of America, mm. and and the switch flips where it goes from being a cynical political exercise to a media bubble that you start to believe is true, you cannot make good decisions because you're not actually dealing in facts. And we've seen that in Victoria and we've seen that federally here in Australia too. Like, you know, and we need to be really mindful that it's not just the Liberals, it's also with the Greens. Anthony Albanese was asked today about 
you know, what do you make of the, the green wave in Victoria? And Albanese said, hang on a minute, let's, let's look at the reality here, right? The reality here is uh, that the Greens may pick up one seat. And Dan Andrews has been returned with a majority for a third term and may have increased his majority in the process. You know, I lead a majority Labor government. Dan Andrews leads a majority Labor government. All of this talk of the end of the two-party system, well, let me tell you, we lead Labor majority governments. And there is a there is a narrative that comes out of the media on the left that says the two-party system is dying, uh, you know, the rise of the Teals, the rise of the Greens, Labor is on the nose, Labor can't form government, there'll be minority government, it'll all be some kind of new utopia where you know, decisions will be made by 150 individuals in the parliament all coming together and coming up with the best solution. Describe so, my face. I mean, you look shocked, appalled, and just completely disinterested in that concept because <laughs> it's a nonsense. You know, you and I have talked before about the breakdown of the of the Menzian Liberal Party, and what we're actually seeing is is exactly that, right, that in Australian politics for a long, long time – even before Federation, back when we were still colonies, there was the Labor Party and everybody else. What we have now in Canberra, in Victoria, right around the country, is a reversion to the Labor Party and everybody else. The Menzian compact of socially conservative, economically liberal is breaking down, partly because, as you say, people in the right have started to believe this crazy conspiratorial right-wing nonsense, these non-logical positions that somehow LGBTIQ children should be shunned and that trans people are not people and that lizards are secretly making Dan Andrews have babies on broken staircases. Like, it's, it's just not logical or rational. Whereas Labor continues to go back to, well, hang on a minute, we're the Labor Party. We're about what are working people need, how do we empower them to get it? What are the material outcomes of policy? And this is the thing, like the the old Menzian compact, and Menzies was very explicit himself. I mentioned this on the telecast last night, that Menzies was asked why he named the new party the Liberal Party as a, when they reformed from the ashes of the UAP, which is the former conservative coalition that collapsed, um, and for similar reasons. And he was asked, why wouldn't you call it a conservative party? And he went, because I want liberals to lead it, because conservatives will grudgingly, they you know, vote for us. They will never vote for the Labor Party. But I'm interested in attracting people who want to be you know, this vision of an urban liberal, you know, like a reasonable, mm. centrist, you know, moderate, moderating influence and at the time as a bulwark to socialism and communism, you know, which means he's very successfully foisted on the Labor Party as a movement of, you know, chaos and a movement of revolution and upheaval. I mean, and that was extremely successful for them. They were, they were the longest-serving federal government in our history was based in a small-L liberal leadership that brought conservatives along with it, and that has completely broken down. And it was interesting because I made a comment last night about 
how the the Greens, we keep hearing this media narrative Mm. that the Greens are all former Labor voters because Greens are concentrated in what used to be very safe Labor seats. But the working class used to live in those seats. Mm. My family, once upon a time, lived in um, the inner city of Sydney, which now has green representatives at a state level. They lived in Newtown. My Mm. grandparents worked at the department store there as retail assistants. And it was Irish ghetto, poorest of the poor kind of place. And it was where working class people live because that's where factories and warehouses and docks were. Mm. Now, the effects of... Uh, globalisation and gentrification of the inner city. And rust-proof paint. And the invention of rust-proof paint, um, which because only poor people used to, it's amazing to think of this now, but only poor people used to live on the water in Sydney because poor people didn't own cars and cars would rust if you lived near Mm. the water. I know, crazy, but this was the physical reality of that particular city. And working-class people have been priced out of those areas. The, Collingwood used to be a completely working-class area. It was the home of the Australian knitting mills, for and, example. And, and I, the knitting mills are luxury warehouse, like, housing now. Yeah. And when I grew up, when I was when I was a teenager, uh, you know, the Collingwood was only just starting its gentrification and it was sort of a hotbed of artists. Um, but, you know, still, my, I remember my mum saying, you got to be careful, you know, there's a lot of bad eggs in that part, part of Melbourne and Collingwood and Fitzroy and a lot of junkies and a lot of criminals and... You know, it was sort of this, the the economic um, uh, offshoring of so many of those jobs had meant those communities kind of slid slid down into more of a poverty circumstance and had only just started to get back up onto the ladder of people going, actually, it's really cool to live so close to the CBD where I work in my giant glass tower and now I can buy this hovel and turn it into a very plush pad. Yes. Well, let's have a look at uh, major employers that are in green, like the green Mm. seat, Uh, Melbourne Uni, uh, all of the hospitals in the inner city of Melbourne, which, of course, employ academics and medical people, Here's an extraordinary piece of news. The base of the Greens vote comes from three industries, academia, medicine, and media and com- like associated industries. Well, I mean, these are the people who we know live in the inner city. These aren't working class people. Mm. They may work. They may be in unions. And, look, I hope they are. But there's been a process of demographic change over the past 30 years. It's been incredibly rapid and has been accompanied by this mass gentrification. My own family, my cousins inherited a house in Annandale. I I just, I, I cannot imagine the difference in the value of the house when they sold it and what that particular house would be worth now. Yeah. And as working class people went, woohoo, we can get out of our pokey little you know, inner city yeah. house and move out to the Burbs and have like a four-bedroom house in Sylvania, I think they went to at the time. And these different kinds of gentrification patterns have had electoral effects. The thing is that if you're in the inner city of Melbourne, which now has four green state representatives and a federal green representative in Adam Band, you're in a very different social and economic milieu governed by different electoral and demographic forces than the majority of Victorians who are making electoral decisions. It's like it's quite interesting because it's almost like the Labor community, the Labor voting community of traditional Labor voters mm. actually 
invisible to the people who are writing about politics. I mean, I feel like an outlier, as you can mm. imagine, because um, now that now particularly so because we live in regional Australia, where I think we see a lot more of the majority discourse around policy, around political alignment than you would if you lived in what is an atypical political community, which is the inner city of Melbourne. And it's a and you can see it in the reporting. Like it is a real problem. The issue is not that the journalists are bad, because obviously, you know, some of these people mm. are great journalists and detailed journalists and work with the facts that they've got, but they're not getting the facts that they need. And quite frankly, I think it's poor socialization. Yeah. And I've said this about some leading journalists. Like I don't like to slag journalists out. Obviously, because I'm in the media, it's a, it's a harder job than people think it is. Yeah. The pressures and deadlines are, you know, eight times what they were 20 years ago. You know, it's hard and exhausting work that requires, you know, a kind yeah. of commitment that that people don't understand that people don't understand unless they're in there. But I also understand that you don't ask the questions you need to ask unless you know what the questions are. And if you're living and socialising in an atypical social milieu to the people who theoretically you're writing about, you're not going to get it right. And my experience in the media, it is highly unusual that I'm a media person who went to state school. Mm. The overwhelming majority of Australians go to state school, Mm. but not the overwhelming majority of media people. And that's a real concern. Well, it is a real concern. And, And I think the results from the election show the difference between people's lived experience on the ground and the experience of media professionals. You know, seats like Bayswater, where you had a a Labor MP who, due to redistribution, was in a notionally liberal seat, got a 7% swing towards him. Now, that seat was written off. It was put into the columns of the Liberals from almost every publication. And you and I, you know, we had conversations with people in the Labor Party who went, actually, he's an incredibly effective MP. Jackson is going to has knocked on every door. He had knocked every door, every door in his electorate three times you know, before the election. He, if if candidates are worth anything in an election, that's going to be the proof that they that they actually add value. Um, and if he loses, then it shows actually it's all just stats and demographics, and it doesn't matter what a candidate does. Now, he did that work. He got a 7% swing towards him. He was called pretty early in the night as having won that seat for Labor. But the the lack of socialisation, the lack of media interest in what's happening in the suburbs, what's happening in the regions. You know, Labor has got a lock on Geelong, on Ballarat, on Bendigo, on that southeastern corridor of Melbourne. Yeah, the western suburbs, there was a bit of discussion about that because, you know, some Footscray is a bit trendy and there's a bit of, you know, what's going on in the western suburbs. But this idea that there was going to be this huge backlash and and MPs and candidates who were on 20-point margins were going to be thrown out. I mean, this was discussed as though it was a fait accompli. Yeah. The Tim Palace, the treasurer of Victoria who has delivered huge infrastructure investments, huge economic prosperity, was somehow or another going to be thrown out of the seat of Werribee. Got a 3% swing towards him. You know, and it's it's a short drive, folks, from, you know, South Bank to these suburbs to actually talk to some people, to find some people 
who maybe don't really want to talk to you. And aren't cafe owners. And aren't cafe owners. I mean, for God's sake, stop asking the easiest person. The person who most wants to talk to you is not going to have an independent view. It's the person who doesn't want to talk to a journalist. That's the person whose view you need to get. It's the person who doesn't want to engage that is actually going to be reflective of the vast majority. Because we have universal enfranchisement and that person still votes. It's so interesting. And, I mean, part of part of what I find fascinating is the lack of appreciation because of this poor socialisation of looking at what the economic forces, because I mean, most voters are material. The voters mm. who change election outcomes, who change governments are material voters. And that means, and this will be a shock for people who live in the inner city, where one of the biggest issues was forests, which I just find amazing. One of the biggest issues for for Greens voters in the inner city was forests. There are no forests in, in the inner city. No. Where these people live, there are no forests. No. They've chosen is- to live in a place, the furthest possible place from a forest. Yeah, and like, okay, I mean, I love forests, which is one well, of the- Well, we live near one. Which is why we live near one, you know, which, like, okay, I mean, sure. Yeah. Don't visit. Anyway, um, <laughs> whereas out here, material outcomes, jobs, infrastructure, they're a really big deal. Yeah. They're prosperity and quality of life and opportunity issues for the kind of voters who determine elections. And it was like this absolute- blind spot they had about what things like the transition policies of Mm. the Andrews government. So there is, by the way, everybody, massive amounts of investment going on in renewable industry, Mm. renewable energy infrastructure in this state. And it has been designed to transition um, jobs and communities out where we live, Ben. But can I just say, so we've got wind farms, we're going to have transmission wires. There's been lots of discussion about that. But on that point, you know, the, the announcement of bringing back the State Electricity Corporation, which is designed to help facilitate these things, right, to to bring online more renewable energy, to have it state-owned, so owned by the people, to have employment directly of people in Victoria by the Victorian government to deliver more apprenticeships, more traineeships in a growing industry, renewable energy. That was mocked by some people in the media. That was mocked by some people in in that kind of inner city view. Oh yeah, absolutely. When Dan Andrews wore Describe my face. Like Van just pulled this face like you can't be serious. But I am deadly serious. But Dan Andrews wore uh you know those kind of jackets that he wears, those old North Face jackets. Well he wore one with an SEC logo on it. And and the media attacked him for it. They hounded him about it. Oh how dare he do this and that's a breach of the rules and you know it's not going to happen anyway. What a silly policy. What a ridiculous idea. And you know what? Right around the state, people went, it makes sense for government to provide mm. like our our critical infrastructure, our critical resources, our critical utilities. And then lo and behold, Matthew Guy's like, I'm going to privatise water. I'm going to privatise sewerage. And people went, hey, what? What? What are you talking Why would you do that? Why would you want to privatise more things? Universally, we hate that. That's a bad idea. Yeah, I've got to say the most memorable policy advanced by Matthew Guy in this election was to privatise your poo. And I'm just like, that's the best, that's what you've got? That's literally the offering you're taking to the electorate. At the same time, the UK, who has done that, who has fully privatised their water and sewage systems, is experiencing literally massive amounts of human faecal matter on their beaches. 
Like, and again, the media did not cover that. The, the, the way they chose to report the, the policy announcements by Labor was to be dismissive. The way they chose to report Liberal policy announcements was to go, this is what the next government's going to do, and to use the language that they had used. So even though there is no conventional gas exploration happening in Victoria, when Matthew Guy and the Liberals announced that they would expand gas production in Victoria and experts said that will mean fracking and Labor said, yeah, that means fracking, the media covered it as, didn't cover it as the Liberals are going to frack. They covered it as the Liberals are going to increase gas production. There was one, I remember seeing one little line that, that said, uh, experts have suggested there is no uh, conventional gas exploration currently happening in Victoria. And you go, have a bit of analysis. Like, you're being told something. Is it true? Is it real? Is it possible? You know, Ben, I really I really worry about it. And we had a great conversation on our show last night with a TikToker who's also on Twitter and various other platforms whose name is Matt Knox, who is TikiLeaks, T-I-K-Y-L-E-A-K-S on um, on TikTok, yeah. and he's got a massive following, and his videos are really, really popular. And he does a lot of he does political commentary, basically, and has been quite an aggressive critic yeah. of the Liberal Party in Victoria. I think that's fair to say, and has produced all of these little videos where he just tears apart propaganda lines and liberal messaging, and also the reportage of stuff mm. in that. And we asked him on the show last night, and you and I are fans of his, but we didn't know this, that he actually started making TikTok videos in his room in 2021 during the pandemic because he got so outraged watching Andrew's presses and watching the media frame that was being built around Dictator Dan, unquote, and was like, this person is fronting the media every day, telling us what's going on, fielding every question, navigating us through a really terrifying crisis, why is this happening, and was motivated to create mm. his media content on a frustration with how media processes were working. And, like, he's awesome and that's great, but there is an enormous risk to democracy that we are currently watching play out in the United States and which is absolutely the case in the autocratic nightmare, which is Russia, mm. where a complete breakdown in trust between the people and masthead legacy journalism means that propaganda can absolutely thrive. Mm. Because if people don't trust, like to see the relentless framing as Daniel Andrew, of Daniel Andrews is so unpopular and dictator Dan, an authoritarian lizard siring, mm, you mm. know, stair dweller or whatever the hell it was, that's that's bad. The, there needs to be a very clear distinction. Like, obviously, I have a very detailed and nuanced ideological lens, mm. which is based in explicit labor socialist politics. And I'm very upfront about that because I'm an opinion columnist. Mm. I write opinion. Now, my opinions are only as valid as they are informed by facts, and I depend on reportage for those facts. Mm. 
you know, which is why I have been critical of the Labor Party and I have been mm. critical, very publicly critical of some Labor positions because obviously the facts do matter. Even if you are ideologically aligned with a pol- particular political project, you know, the facts do matter and to have an opinion around those can be taken in context. But when reportage becomes opinion, when the framing of reportage actually compromises you know, the channel mm. of the facts, everything is blurry and that's really dangerous. And I think it also speaks to, you know, I saw um, some tweets from Paul Carp, who writes for The Guardian, which were really good, calling out some of the some of the opinions that were being peddled as facts by some of these other mastheads uh, because there is a difference between fact based reportage and opinion, and that needs to be maintained. I've no problem. Like, Parmel McGuinness has written a piece today attacking the ACTU and, you know, has an opinion about the ACTU's relationship with the Labor Party, right, and that that's somehow or another going to destroy the economy. That's her opinion. It's clearly Marker's opinion. I think she's wrong. She doesn't particularly refer to any facts, but that's her opinion and it's clearly marked as such. What I have a problem with is when the state political editor writes opinion pieces as though they were reportage. And that's what I think more and more people are concerned about. I think that's what you're concerned about That too. is what I'm concerned about. I think the desire for some reporters to become opinion leaders, to, to get a profile, like if you want to do that, resign as a journalist and find someone who will carry your opinion pieces. Michael Pascoe. Resign as a reporter. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I consider myself a journalist, but I'm always very clear I do opinions. Sure. Michael Pascoe, Alan Collar, these are these are two people who write opinion pieces. They and they do that very clearly. They offer their opinion on things. You know, they were once journalists, reporting journalists, doing reportage. Now they write opinion pieces. It's very important that the difference be maintained. Ben, I want to move us on because there's one other piece of huge news that's happened this week. And we could talk about this all day. Oh, we could. We could. But the secure jobs better pay. You know, we talk about the material reality that impacts people. Well, people's job security, people's pay is so fundamental to the material reality of people's lives. And for a decade, we've seen wages going backwards in this country. Labor got elected on the basis of getting wages moving again. There's been a lot of Sounds discussion. Sounds like a material outcome, Ben. Well, there's been a lot of discussion about it. We've talked about it on this show. We've talked about how David Pocock has an important role to play here in the Senate. This is the independent senator for the ACT, David Pocock, former rugby international. Well, the good news is that David Pocock and the Albanese Labor government have reached an agreement about some amendments to the secure jobs better pay bill, which means it will pass the Senate in the next seven days. So just very briefly, I want to just touch on what some of these are. Tony Burke talked about this on Insiders this morning. The Minister for Industrial Relations, Tony Burke. Yep. And David Pocock has tweeted about it as well. There will be a supported stream multi-employer bargaining, which means that the minister can determine that, say, aged care workers or childcare workers, even if they've achieved better pay, continue to stay in that multi-employer bargain. So there's no kind of, you know, capping out, if you like, and being kicked out of this uh, form of bargaining. Uh, 
the single interest uh, stream of multi-employer bargaining. This is where workers come together and go, we have an interest in bargaining together. We want to be able to do so. The, the threshold for that is now 20. The, the employer has to have more than 20 people employed in order to be in a multi-employer bargain. Uh, and if they have less than 50 then workers have to show that they do have a shared interest and the in the emphasis and the obligations on the workers to prove that. Uh, but once it goes over 50, so if it, you know business has 100 employees or whatever, then the employer, the business has to show that in fact there is no there is no common interest there and they shouldn't be allowed to have a multi-employer bargain. It's a nuance, but it's an important one, right? Like David Pocock wanted to make sure that small businesses that don't want to be caught up in multi-employer bargains didn't get caught up in multi-employer bargains. At the same time, he wanted some threshold, and this gives a gradient, right? So if the workers can show to the Fair Work Commission that, you know, there's 30 of us in this business, but we've got interests that align with the business next door, and there's 30 of them there, and they want a multi-employer bargain, and we want a multi-employer bargain, and here is the proof that those interests align, then the commission can say, yes, a multi-employer bargain will apply. And once you have a large enough uh, business, then it's up to the boss to go to make the case the other way. It's a nuance, but it's an important one, and I don't I don't have a problem with it. David Pocock, well done. There's some detail there around how long renegotiation windows instead of six months, they'd be nine months. Uh, putting in place conciliation before you go to arbitration, that means the parties have to try and reach agreement. They've got to work it out for themselves, and if they can't, bang, it goes to arbitration, which means a judge works it out for Fair them. Fair Work Commission. Fair Work Commission. Which, you know, that's fine. You put in an extra step, give people more opportunity to come to agreement. There's no problem with that in my view. We want workplaces where people come to agreement where they actually, even if that agreement is facilitated, that you know, rather than imposed. But if they can't, then yeah, the referee should absolutely decide which way the free kick goes. Um, the Fair Work Commission will be given power to order votes on multi-employer agreements. David Pocock kept talking about this idea that a union would have a veto over whether or not a multi-employer uh, bargain would go to a vote. Look, I don't have a problem with the Fair Work Commission saying, yep, this has gone through negotiation process, there's been conciliation, and now it's time for it to be voted on. I, I think that's fine. I'm not sure how wedded the union movement was to the idea that a single union could veto uh, a, a bargain being put to a vote. At the moment, you know, bosses can put things to the vote without the union agreement anyway. This is actually an improvement on that situation. Uh, he's also secured a review of the awards. Again, the awards are reviewed pretty regularly, so, you know, that's fine too. Um, and that there You has- want Christmas trees at Christmas, David, you can have them. <laughs> that's right. Okay. And, and no. there's going to be a reasonable comparability. Did I mention something about poorly socialised? Okay, yep. And there's going to be a reasonable comparability threshold into the common interest test. So that's to say that the Fair Work Commission has to, to determine that if you and I work in different businesses, but we want it to have a multi-employer bargain, that there is that it's a reasonably comparable 
um, set of work or reasonably. So, if you're a brain surgeon and I am a nut polisher, probably not going to get covered by a multi-employer bargain. Not probably not reasonably comparable uh, types of business, hospital and nut factory. <laughs> Um, which is fine, right? Uh, and then also, could he- have said something better than not polisher. <laughs> what is wrong with me today? All right, and of course, very tired. I'm very tired. And he wants to have improvements for contractors um, as part of the Murray review, a response to the Murray review, which uh, the government uh, happened under the Morrison government, and there was no response to that. So that's all fine. You know, he's also included in. We, something which is not in Tony Burke's portfolio. Tony was very clear about this on Insiders, but he wanted a panel to review the adequacy of social security payments and for that panel to make recommendations to government before the budget and for it to have public information available two weeks before budget on the adequacy of payments in the social security system. Labor has agreed to that. The Prime Minister has apparently agreed to that. So that will be set up. And again, it's important to remember here that Labor has continually said they would review the adequacy of payments in the social security system before every budget. This is a nice mechanism. Uh, I've got no problem with a good quango. Everybody loves a good quasi-autonomous non-government organisation. This is why I married him. Uh, and this is and this is uh, another one. So that's all well and good. If you want tinsel at Christmas, David, you can also have that. <laughs> so I think what we're going to end up with here is quite a workable bill. Quite a workable bill, and all of the all of the really key things. Multi-employer bargaining is going to be in place. There's been some improvements in the sort of funded stream, the supported stream, uh, which means that more people will be able to access that. There's been some clarity given to the single interest stream, which will hopefully mean less uh, court cases in the first few years, which is also a good thing. The provisions that mean you can't have people on ongoing rolling contracts so the sorts of things we see in academia, some of the stuff we see in media, yes, uh, where people are put on contract after contract after contract, that is going to be dealt with in this in this bill, the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill, uh, and of course the issues around gender equality, the establishment of a gender panel, a gender pay equity panel in the Fair Work Commission. Is that a quango? No, that's more that's more of a supplementary. I just wanted to say the word quango again. It's such a great word. It's more of a supplementary panel to a pre-existing uh, quango. Um, so many reasons to love you. <laughs> so many, and of course, making pay equity a, a uh, an outcome, a purpose, part of the part of the aims of the bill, as well as making job security part of the aims of the Fair Work Act. This is a fundamental shift. Like it's so important. Uh, and of course, as I've said, some opinion writers are already saying it'll be the end of the uh, Albanese Labor government. Quite frankly, what this will do is this will allow workers, predominantly low-paid workers, but all workers, to band together where they have common interests and negotiate with the people who are actually in charge. So instead of 56 enterprise agreements at places like Qantas, you can actually go, we have a common interest and we will take that to the Fair Work Commission and we will argue to the Fair Work Commission that we should be allowed to bargain together and we will get permission to have a multi-employer bargain. So no more division of workers 
into little bite-sized chunks that big employers can chew up as and when they like. No more can small childcare, early childhood education centres, childcare centres, no more can small disability service providers, small family domestic violence support centres be atomized and isolated from each other, but actually can band together under the recognition that they are funded from the same area, that they are in fact all working to the same purpose. They are all part of the same industry and economic activity and should be able to- They are contributing the same productivity. And should be recognized as such. These are fundamental changes. And let me just say this for those who go, oh, it's the end of everything. It's the beginning of everything. Absolutely. Absolutely the beginning of everything. It's how Germany has been able to maintain a high productivity, high wage, export-focused economy in light of low-wage exploitation happening in places like China, Vietnam, Cambodia, because they have banded together and gone, we as a community of workers, business owners, uh, of a body politic, want to have a high-wage, high-productivity economy. So let's talk about that. Let's work through that. Let's work together on making that happen. That's how it's happened in the Netherlands. It's how it's happened in Norway. It's how it's happening now even in California, where fast food workers are able to have multi-employer bargains. And it's happening just across the ditch in New Zealand. So huge outcome. It's so interesting. And, you know, fair play to David Pocock. I'm really glad that he came through because David Pocock's definitive issue was was the pace of uh, climate action and multi-employer bargaining, as we said, and I would recommend people listen to our last show, facilitates collective action, collective negotiation, like workers to industry, to government discussions about industry policy and how industry policy can speak to environmental concerns and climate concerns. And those kind of conversations, streamlining streamlining those, actually helps us get to structural solutions around environmental challenges a lot faster. So I'm really thrilled that David Pocock has had the bravery to sign on to this. I would like to acknowledge that Jackie Lambie didn't have the bravery in this case, and I was really disappointed I was really disappointed in Jackie and the other Tasmanian senator from the Jackie Lambert network that they were, you know, I don't even know why they couldn't come to the party on this. I'm like, Jackie, you represent working class people. You say you do. You say you re- that you represent these communities of battlers and you have made the battle no, no easier. For no, them. and and frankly, doubt herself out of the discussions very early on. Um, wouldn't come to the table, as, as far as I'm aware, wouldn't come to the table, wouldn't engage in it. Uh, and it's really disappointing because Tasmanian workers are the worst paid workers in the country. Uh, they buy hundreds of dollars a week, mind you. So you've got workers, as we said on the last show, you've got workers in Tasmania working for the same company that has produ- production in on the mainland, earning $200 a week less than the same people doing the same work for the same company in mainland Victoria, in mainland Australia. The idea that two senators from Tasmania would look at that and go, 
well, that's just because we have an enterprise bargaining system and we have to maintain that system, even if it's costing Tasmanians hundreds of dollars a week each, every week, every year of their lives. Just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But look, you know, and insiders talked about this at great length, right? And and it's a Sunday show, so we talk about it a little bit. But um, Nikki Sava was asked, you know, how will people in Canberra respond to this concept that David Pocock, who took a lot of votes from Liberals, took a lot of votes of Zed Selja. Selja. I can never say his name right. Um, but That's on you, Ben. That is on me. I, I will wear that. That's fine. I'll uh, pin that badge on me. Um, but Nikki Sava made the point that she talks to a lot of Liberals in Canberra not surprised to hear that, really. Uh, and they're very comfortable with the way David Pocock has approached this and everything that he's been doing because he's taking that centrist view. David Pocock is actually a bit of a Menzian liberal. Mm. He's socially progressive. Socially progressive, economically fairly conservative. We should remember Robert Menzies put out flyers saying that the Liberal Party supports unions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not surprising that someone in that Menzian mould would go, well, yeah, if people are being brought to the table, if we're limiting the excesses of power, if we're making sure that radicalisation can't occur in the union movement or isn't isn't going to be the the ongoing daily if experience. If, no, specifically... Radicalization shouldn't be the privilege of a few to impose on the many. Yeah, that's right. You know, if the many want radicalization, radicalization is warranted and deserved. And this system allows that, right? So I get that his view is that he didn't want a minority, a radical minority, dragging a reluctant majority into industrial action that they didn't want to do, right? Because industrial action costs workers money as well as costing bosses money. Yeah, I get all that. Yeah, people do not like going on strike, and but that doesn't mean we get rid of the right to strike. That's right. And what these changes do is it says you've got to be in the majority before you're allowed to make decisions for the majority. I think that makes common sense. I think that's called democracy. And look, a bit of workplace democracy is probably just what the doctor ordered. I've got to say, democracy is pretty empowering. Just ask the people of Victoria. Absolutely. Look at that. Look at that comeback. Woo! And look, that I think is about enough for the weekend wrap. We This has been an extra long episode today. But of course- It could have gone for hours, frankly. There is so much to discuss about the Victorian election. And we will end up talking more about- uh, the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill probably on Wednesday. And if you really want to nerd out, I will post the link to the YouTube of our election coverage last night where we had lots and lots and lots of extremely detailed conversations. You can replay all the highlights of the election. We were we were the first network to call it for Labor, I'd like to say. Uh, we were. And uh, certainly we are enormously grateful for your assistance and I'm specifically speaking to our Buy Me A Coffee supporters the money that you give us to keep the show going means that we don't have to charge people who don't have money to listen to it, but it also means that we can advertise the show and build the audience and it and it gives us the capacity to do things like election telecasts. And I also want to give a big shout out and thank you to uh, the supporters of 
the telecast last night, Morris Blackburn, who supported our federal election telecast and our state election telecast. Full disclosure, they're our lawyers and they're fantastic. <laughs> uh, and they have they have provided financial support to both of those broadcasts as well. And, you know, it's a collective effort and without their support, these things wouldn't happen as well. Yeah. Also, Mikkel and the Mikkel Institute. And Dunn Street, of And Dunn Street, the consultancy, all supported the broadcast last night. Uh so until Wednesday, when Van and I will talk to you again, remember, be kind to yourself and to each other.